The sermon text for this morning is Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. He is risen. It's a great day to preach. It's a great day for the Christian to think about death being defeated and Christ being risen. And Mark gives us classic Mark style, uh, very brief, uh, very clear, uh, doesn't it uses an economy of words, doesn't speak a lot about the nature of it, doesn't give a lot of details, but gives us enough to teach us much about the resurrection. He's going to kind of have three movements in this passage that you just heard. The first movement is kind of the women going to the tomb and, and what they were thinking and, and how they were behaving. And then they have this encounter with an angel, this young man, uh, and then they flee the tomb. So that's kind of the three movements that we'll look at in this story, in Mark's rendition of it. Again, Matthew, they all record this story, the resurrection of Christ. Mark does it in very abbreviated fashion, but still plenty for us to look at. So you see these women to the tomb. Now, now I just want to bring to your attention how simple it is. When the Sabbath was passed, remember Jesus was crucified on a Friday afternoon and and was buried toward the end of the day when the Sabbath was beginning. So these women weren't able to get spices to his body. They weren't able to anoint his body, and so they had to wait. But the Sabbath goes all the way till Saturday afternoon. So after Saturday, when the sun went down, they went to buy these spices. And then, of course, they went the next morning or Sunday morning, which would have been a Jewish first day of the week. Now, they were trying to do one last act of kindness for Jesus, to anoint his body. Now, remember, the Egyptians would mummify bodies, but the Jews did not. They would take aromatic spices and place them around the body and then wrap uh, strips of cloth around it to try to help in terms of the smell of a decomposing body. And so these women were going to do that. Now, on the way, taking the spices... It dawned on them, of course, that there was no one to roll back the stone. Now, back in this day, oftentimes people were born in these sepulchers or these tombs, at least the rich were, and uh, they would roll a stone in front of the opening because that way it would discourage, perhaps, any thieves or robbers that might think something of value was left with the deceased. And they were often rolled down a track, and you can see them actually in Jerusalem now, These big circular stones would be rolled down a track, making them easy to close but difficult to open. Now you may think, well, what were they thinking leaving their homes in the dark, arriving at sunrise, and and 
not thinking that the thing had to be open, that the tomb, that the stone had to be rolled back. But, but for a minute, I think you can understand why they might do this. I mean, they're in despair. They're in discouragement. I mean, if you think they spent years of their life with Jesus Christ, and, and they had invested time, and they had seen his power. I mean, think about it for a minute. They saw him heal the sick and cleanse the leper and give sight to the blind and give hearing to the deaf. And they even saw him raise the dead. Their hopes were sunk in him as the Messiah. Their hopes were sunk in him that he would be the deliverer. And then within just a few days, he's betrayed, he's arrested, he's tried, he's convicted, he's tortured, he's crucified, he's buried. All within a few days. I mean, wouldn't you be in despair? I mean, not just the loss of a friend to death, but the loss of their dreams, their hopes. I mean, all that Jesus had promised, they seemed to just go up like smoke. I think you and I can understand that, because if you're old enough to have buried someone that you love, it's a difficult thing to do. There is much despair. Death does that. I mean, death causes despair. Why? Because it seems so unstoppable. I mean, I I know we may have newer medicines and we may have healthier eating and we may have better technology and better preventative methods, but the reality is everybody dies. You know, we have an expression here in the West, death and taxes, you know, everything else may change, but those things don't change. But, you know, we say it, but they're really not the same. I mean, in taxes, we may be paying on Tuesday, and we may not like it, but Wednesday, it's going to be another day. But with death, you're separated, you're lonely. There's a gap in your life. Now, we try to joke it off. If you remember Woody Allen, he was a comic from the 70s and 80s. He might have have snuck into the 90s, but he used to joke around and say, well, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Well, you know, even in his humor, he kind of alludes a little bit to his fear. The fear of death, because there's nothing you can do. Edgar Allan Poe is a famous American poet in the 19th century, and he wrote a poem called The Raven. And in this poem, uh, the raven itself, in the poem, speaks and repeats over and over, nevermore, 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 nevermore. And, And it's kind of a repeating theme through the whole poem. The poem just isn't about a lost love that will nevermore be had again, but it's really about the loss of life. The reason we despair is because all the memories, all the joys, all the satisfaction, the life we had, never more, never more. You will never more have that. You will never more have that. That's why people are despairing over death. Do you realize, that at least according to Luc Ferry, a French philosopher, he wrote a great little book called A Brief History of Thought, and he said this, that, that the whole birth of the Academy of Philosophy, the study of philosophy, It came about to try to understand how do we deal with death? How are we to live today if we know we're going to die tomorrow? How can we do it? How can we we organize ourselves and orient ourselves around life when we know it's going to end? So there's a lot of despair with death. What do you think of when you think of your own death? Maybe you don't think about your own death. What do you think about the death of someone that you love, perhaps your parent, perhaps your spouse. What does it make you think? Do you wonder what is on the other side? Or maybe you even wonder, maybe you're here today and you're, you're looking at Christianity, you're not necessarily Christian, but maybe you wonder, is there another side? It's, it's a question I want you to think about. Uh, 
we're too easily distracted, or some of us are even deluded by these sugary versions of life after death that just kind of come from the musings of people. It, it, all of us here will face that day. And so we, we want to think about it now. Are you in despair over it? Are you concerned over it? Well, these women were as they move to the tomb. Now, when they get to the tomb, they find that, in fact, the stone was rolled, rolled away. And, and they enter the tomb, and the tomb's there. Uh, you enter them. Sometimes they have a room of preparation. And then there's like an antechamber. There's like a, you bend down, and, and you go into a small chamber where they would put the bodies. So these women went in there. They knew where he was laid. We know that from Mark fifteen forty seven. They saw where he was put. And so they went there, they went in, they bent down, and there they see this young man. Now, Mark says he's a young man dressed in white. Luke's gospel says it was dazzling white, like blinding white. But we don't need to know that to know that it was an angel. Uh, We know it by the reaction of the women. I mean, the women are alarmed. They're alarmed. That word, that Greek word means they were terrified. They were scared. They were under great stress. You can imagine it's, it's standing before an angel. Now, now, I know that we have domesticated angels. Now we make them, they're chunky little cherubs, and they, they have wings that you don't think can actually support them in the air. They usually have a curl or a wisp of hair out their back. Uh, but, but that's not the way the Bible describes an angel. Anytime angels approach or are with humans, there is fear and there is dread. In fact, in 1 Kings 19, there's the story of God sending one angel and he slew 185,000 soldiers with one blow. Now, you may choose to not believe that, but the Bible at least describes angels as powerful and majestic. And so when these women saw this angel, Luke says that they fell on their faces, as I think we might, fell on their faces in fear. Now, notice the angel, though, comforts them. The angel says, don't be alarmed. You know, don't be scared. And then he goes and he explains. He knows why they're there. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. You seek him. Jesus of, he, and I think that it's God's grace that he identified Jesus of Nazareth. I'm sure they thought they were out of their minds. Where are we? What tomb are we in? Are our minds functioning? And so he identifies Jesus both by hometown and by the way he died. But then the angel comforts these women with words really that have rocked our world. He is risen. He's alive. He's conquered death. Death has not held him. And can you imagine? The, the incredulous nature of their faces caused the angel to say, well, go see where he was laid. Go look for yourself. Now, I want you to consider something here, that none of the Gospels... All of them report the resurrection. None of them speak to the actual events of Jesus being raised. None of them do. I mean, mean, none of them speak in descriptive ways about how Jesus was raised. None of them speak about the events. Oh, there's plenty of eyewitnesses regarding his death and his burial, and there's plenty of eyewitnesses regarding his being um, alive after being raised. But there's nothing in the scripture about that event. It's like a creation, if you will. You know, in creation, there were no human eyes to kind of peer over the fence to see God forming worlds and constellations. 
Can you imagine being there? When God creates all things, no human eye saw that. And no human eye saw this. No human eye saw God raise the Son from the dead. You can just imagine the cords of death snapping as Jesus is brought. A new creation is being formed. A new order is being established. A new day is now dawning with the breaking of death and the putting of death to death. No, I saw that. You can imagine they were dizzied with confusion, bewilderment. But then the angel doesn't stop there. This encounter with the angel continues as he instructs them and says, go tell the disciples that I'm going to Galilee, that he will be in Galilee, just as he told you. Now, listen, the angel is gracious here. The angel is, is, is causing these women rejoice. Rejoice that you will see him bodily, physically, gloriously. But notice the hint of rebuke there, just as he told you. Jesus had told them in Mark 8, 9, and 10 that he would be raised from the dead. He told them, I'll suffer, I'm going to die, and I'll be raised from the dead. But he even told them in Mark 14, 28 that he would go to Galilee before them. But nobody was in Galilee. They were in Jerusalem. They didn't believe it. Now, I'm sympathetic to these women. I mean, there was nothing in this culture that would have prepared them for this, other than what Jesus said. The, the, the Greek thought of the day was that to die, the spirits finally released to freedom. The Greeks didn't want the body. They didn't believe in a bodily resurrection, and neither did the Jews. The Jews believed in the body being raised, but on the last day, not like this. They were totally unprepared for this. It just reminds us, if I can pause for a minute, it reminds us that we need God's word to illuminate. You know, God's acts among humans are not always self-evident. You don't always understand them apart from his revelation. You, you can't get it all. Think about the events of the resurrection. I mean, the, the Romans and the, and the Jewish leaders and uh, the disciples, they all had the same facts. He uh, was buried and he died. He, was, he died, was buried, and, and there were appearances afterwards. A stone was rolled away. There was an angel. There was an earthquake. They all had the same data, but the others didn't believe. They interpreted it as, no, the body was probably stolen. The disciples interpreted as the angel revealed to them that, no, Christ has been risen. We need the words of God. Many events in your life, you can't, it's hard to interpret life and understand the nature of this world apart from God revealing it to us. But what I also want you to see here is the significance of women. It's funny how women play such a central role in this scene. These women were devoted, they were fiercely devoted to Christ. You know, where are the disciples? Where are the male disciples? They were gone. But it's the women that were there at the death and at the burial and at the first sighting. They were the first ones to see him. These women. You know, it's interesting, too, because God, God orchestrated that the same eyes, the, these Marys and the Salome, that they saw him, they, they are the connecting chain. We saw him on the cross. We saw him take his last breath. We saw him in the, we put in the tomb, and we saw him alive. They provide for us the consistent witness of all these last events, not men. The women do. God has really elevated the role and the value of women. 
He has given them a place in the kingdom to be the first witnesses and the first testifiers of his resurrection. Significant, the role. Women, do you understand that? I mean, depending upon the culture and the background that you have, this is a significant statement to women. Okay, so they, they're going to the tomb, they encounter the angel. Here's the third movement of the story. They fly out of the tomb as their hair is on fire. Can't you imagine? I mean, first the, the angel says he's going to be in Galilee. Can you imagine the excitement that they had? I, I mean, it had to be bewilderment. In fact, that's what it says here. It says that they were trembling and they were astonished. The word for trembling is like, like you're shaking because you think you're going to die. I mean, it, it's, it's a terror trembling. But they were also astonished. And that word for astonished means kind of an incomprehensible ecstasy. So you can imagine the confusion in their minds. The same word was used at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the beginning of Gospel of Mark, really, and sprinkled throughout. People were astonished over Jesus. He spoke in ways nobody spoke. He had authority. He did teaching that nobody ever taught. He did miracles that nobody ever did. So this idea of astonishment is these women were astonished. They were blown away. They didn't have the categories to understand what they're now understanding. They couldn't process what they were trying to process. This idea that now a dead man, we saw him dead, we saw him dead, we put him, he was dead as a doornail, and now he's alive. And that's why they run away in silence. What do you say? I mean, they're flying through the streets of Jerusalem going to tell the disciples. We don't even know what to tell them. There was nobody there. This is what Easter is supposed to do to the heart of any person who believes, in the sense that God has shown us. No other religion has this. No other religion even makes the claim to have this, that death has been defeated in Christ, that he has been raised from the dead. But notice how Mark ends his gospel or at least ends this section. Look in verse 8. The last thing Mark wrote is, for they were afraid. Now, many of your Bibles have verses 9 to 20, <clears throat> but they have brackets. Many of them have brackets around them. And the reason that verses 9 to 20 are bracketed in some versions of the Bible is because these verses are not in some of the oldest manuscripts that we've discovered in the Middle East. And so there's theological debate where these added later. Now, they still purport to tell the truth because they agree with other Gospels. But, but there is the question is, did Mark end his Gospel on the eighth verse? And it would be an odd way of ending a Gospel, for they were afraid. But let me just submit to you, and I don't want to try to get into the theological debate as to whether it is or is not, I just like the idea that he could have ended his gospel that way. And it would be an unusual and abrupt way, for they were afraid. It leaves everything wide open, doesn't it? It leaves everything open. It leaves open these, this fear, these devastating impact, the immense, the immense implications of if he did, if he was raised from the dead, what does that mean for us? And if you were, if you were reading and you got there, you'd have to say, what are the implications of this for me? What does it mean to me right now that he might be raised? And so looking at these three moments, let me just trace out now some of the implications I would like you to think about. In fact, I'd like you to, even if you're here with family or friends, even discuss these 
later on in the day. Because if true, it's world-changing. And if not, then you might as well eat, drink, and be merry. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. But if it's true, it's worthy of some time. So let me give you implication number one would be that the resurrection confronts the world as a historical event. A historical event. <clears throat> so it's not fable. It's not fiction. And while many, uh, even theological scholars of the day, want to purport the resurrection as kind of a metaphor of life, like I, you know, like you get second chances, it's like a resurrection. They try to make a metaphor out of this. Well, if the crucifixion is historical, then so is the resurrection. Mark intends for us to see both in the same way, that it's a historical event. You kind of see it in a number of ways. Number one, he uses women and, and the names. It's Mary, mother of. And he repeats their names three times over two chapters. In other words, he's kind of saying, this is like an ancient way of footnoting your story. If you don't believe me, go ask them. Mark's gospel was written fairly close to the resurrection. In terms of time, they were still alive. Go ask them. I'm giving their names and who they're the mother of so you can go verify it. And legends don't have that. Fables don't have that. But, but secondly, you see that this is historical in the linguistic details. The sun was rising. The stone was very large. In fables and fairy tales, it's very general. You don't have specifics given. Why? Because it's a story. It isn't true. You don't have the details. But, but another reason that I see this as historical, an actual event, is that women were the witnesses. As I said to you, they were given a right place by God, but in this culture at this time, women were not admissible as, as um, giving testimony in a court of law in the Jewish world. They, they were considered unreliable. I'm sorry, ladies, I don't feel that way. But they did then, and they did not take witnesses. And not only that, but, but Celsus, he was a second century critic of Christianity. He mocked the Christian faith because of Mary Magdalene being a witness, saying that she was hysterical and unreliable. So I'm trying to show to you that the cultural understanding of women, you would, if you're going to fabricate a resurrection, you don't put a bunch of women down, being the witnesses. You put men down. But the fact that women were the first witnesses would give authenticity to the story. But not just that. What about an empty tomb? I mean, there is historic, where, where was the body? Even Jewish polemicists or apologists, those defending the faith, even they did not dispute that the tomb was empty. They made up a story. They said the disciples stole him, which seems inane for someone that knows he's dead to steal him, to say he's not dead, and then and be killed because you've said that a dead man was not dead. It, it would be inane. But they made up the story. They never disputed the empty tomb. Think about that for a minute. What, I mean, the Jews were not in favor of Christ. The Romans were not. Why wouldn't they just hold the body up? All they'd have to do is put them on a post. Put them on a post for a few days. The whole thing would be crushed. be easy to do. And, you know, Peter references this. When Peter preaches in his sermon in the first time in Acts chapter 2, he says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. He's drawing a comparison between Jesus and David. Hey, David, we know he died. Go open the tomb door, and you can see his bones or whatever's left of it. 
Jesus, you have no body. Now, saying that the resurrection is historical doesn't mean that it wasn't miraculous. It was miraculous. We don't have categories. If you're, if you're going to live in a purely natural world, a closed system that only what you see and only what you taste and feel and touch and can hear, then we don't have the categories for this. But let me remind you that, that those who are quick to discount, if you're here and you say, ah, I don't believe in miracles, I would ask you why you don't. You know, most people that don't believe in miracles are those that have already determined to not believe in miracles. So they, they presuppose miracles are an impossibility, so when they're confronted with a miracle, that can't be a miracle. They've, it's self-fulfilling prophecy. But let me remind C.S. Lewis wrote a book on miracles, and here's what he said. He said, we have not, in fact, so let me say this, we have not, in fact, proved that science excludes miracles. We have only proved that the question of miracles, like innumerable other questions, excludes laboratory treatment. That's all. You can't test in a laboratory. Or Alistair McGrath, another British theologian, says if resurrections happen regularly, there would be nothing different about Jesus being raised from the dead. He would be one among many, just another statistic. If Jesus' resurrection is unique, then by definition, there will be no analogous events. That makes it a lot harder to believe. It also makes it worth believing. So you have this idea. It's just, so if, if you're not a Christian here, what do you do with this empty tomb? What would be a response? Why would the faith have spread so quickly and so widely? You know, many of you may not know this, but there were probably dozens of Messianic movements both before and after Jesus died. Men that would stand up and say, we're the Messiah. They'd gather around a people and they would then begin to try to walk out what it means to be the Messiah. And they'd end up being killed or they'd end up dying and the movements just flatlined right after they died. But if Jesus died and was buried and his body was there, how, what would promote this faith to spread so fast and so far and be so broad? But for the Christian here, if you're a Christian, I want you to remember this is God has satisfied our need to have a rational understanding of the faith. That it's in space and time. Uh, this isn't a philosophy. It's not an ideology. Jesus Christ took on flesh. He dwelt among us. You could, you could touch him. You could see him. You could hear him. He died and he rose again. So God has entered our world. He hasn't come down with a great idea. Here's a great philosophy for you. He entered our space and time. Our faith is rational. It's not rationalistic. That's a, that's a, that's a different ism. But it's rational. It's, it's built upon reason. You know, the proof that we have, you know, the eyewitness proof, nobody saw Washington, George Washington, nobody saw Abraham Lincoln, but we have eyewitnesses who've testified and written about it, and we believe them, and we believe they exist. It's the same thing, this eyewitness proof for us. So it's a historical event. Secondly, the resurrection encourages or offers hope to those of us who are dying, which, by the way, is all of us. The fact that Jesus has come out of the grave means that we too now have a basis for our hope to come out of the grave. You know, only 54% of Christians believe in a bodily resurrection. And yet Jesus says, or Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, that he's the first fruits of those who have died. But Paul writes in Philippians 3.21 that Jesus will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. There is the assurance of our being raised. 
Thomas Watson, a Puritan theologian back in the 17th century, said, we are more sure to come out of our graves than we are to get out of our beds. You know, when you, um, when you think about as you get older and your eyes begin to function less well and your bodies begin to break down and you see that life is beginning to close to an end, this satisfies us to know that our lives, the joys we've had, the relationships we've established, the things that we've done, that it just doesn't end in a zero. It doesn't end in dust. God is satisfying us that life goes on, that life is eternal. We are to draw hope and strength from this. You know, most of you have put a loved one into the ground. And uh, this encourages us. I mean, even having, uh, as, as my family and I buried my mother less than six months ago, this satisfies, this helps, this strengthens us to know that as Christ has come out of the grave, we too shall come out of the grave. It gives meaning, it gives purpose to this life. I hope it encourages you. Uh, th- the third thing about the resurrection is that the resurrection reverses agony into glory. That's what it does. The resurrection reverses agony into glory. You think about these women. These women were devastated and they were despairing. And yet, within a moment of knowing Christ has been raised, that there is life beyond the grave, they're astonished. They're excited. They're overjoyed. It reminds us that the suffering that we go through, and I don't want to delegitimize it. I don't want to call you just to put on a happy face. I want us to lament. I want us to mourn over the suffering and the struggles we go through. But I just want us to do that and then say, it will not always be this way. It will not always be this way. That that all these sufferings are going to be turned into something glorious. C.S. Lewis again, he wrote Great Divorce, which is about heaven. And he said these words, he says, Some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. In other words, some people are saying, you know what, no matter what the future holds, it won't make up for the suffering. And here's what he said. He said, they don't know that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. This is the hope we have, that even the sufferings in this life will be moved into the good. They'll, they'll be fashioned as part of the great work of God in our life. Even the suffering we experience now, God will redeem it, develop it, change us through it, and we will thank him on the other side for that. So, so this is what the resurrection hope. It gives meaning. The glory of the resurrection shines its light back into this life so that even suffering in this life has meaning and value and purpose. And we can endure it thanking God for what it will produce. And we do this by eyes of faith. There's no doubt about that. Nobody looks for or enjoys suffering. But the resurrection shows us that in his suffering, he brought life. And so in our suffering, we too will bring life. Okay, another thing that we see regarding the resurrection is that it gives hope to us as Christians who constantly struggle with the faith. I mean, look at these women. These women are carrying spices to the tomb. What is on their mind? He's dead. They did not believe him when he said he would rise again. 
What about the disciples? Where are they? They deserted him in the garden. They're gone. They made quick getaway. And yet, what does the angel say? Tell them he'll meet them in Galilee. I mean, do you love that? In Matthew's gospel, you know what it says? It says in Matthew's gospel, tell my brothers I'll see them in Galilee. Is that mercy? I mean, could not Jesus have been chastising and rebuking them? I told you over and over and over, and you didn't listen to me, and now that I'm coming back, you believe in me now? There isn't that, there isn't that chiding in the voice of our Savior. Or what about Peter? Did you notice Peter is mentioned by name? None of the others were. Only Peter. Why? Why Peter? Well, because he did the most. Denied him three times. Deserted him. And yet he offers grace to Peter that Peter would again be called back, not just into fellowship with Christ, but into ministry. This just satisfies our need. I mean, we constantly fail in the faith, and many of us look at ourselves and we just are amazed at how God could love us. That's probably a good place to start. And, and, but then we stay there, unfortunately, and we, we forget that he actually does love us, and his grace is greater than your failure. And you see that here. The resurrection shows his grace is greater than your failure. Christian, if you struggle right now, let this satisfy you. Let this cause you to rejoice. If you're at a place right now where you just have, you've just fouled things up to a point that you think is beyond measure, just repent, seek his grace, ask for mercy. He's displayed a kindness to us that's without measure. Just appeal to him by faith for mercy. And then there's only two other implications I want to make. Uh, would be that we know, the implication of the resurrection, we know that we're forgiven. Listen, to those who have a guilty soul, to those who are burdened by the shame of their sin, and you think that God can probably forgive everybody else, but I don't know that he can really forgive me. Or I've walked in that sin so many times, there's no way he'll forgive me for that. Or wh- whatever kind of guilt-producing you know, he- head things you do to keep yourself under guilt, the resurrection proves that God has accepted the work of Christ and brought forgiveness to us. Listen, without his death, we'd be dead in our sins. We'd still be guilty. And without his resurrection, we'd be facing judgment. But with the resurrection, it shows us God has raised him from the dead. In other words, God saying, I have accepted the sacrifice of the Son. Full atonement has been made. I have accepted his sacrifice for your sins. You are now forgiven. In fact, it says in Romans 4.25 that through his resurrection, we are justified. We're declared innocent. We're made right with God. When Jesus said, and as we sang, it is finished, he didn't say it's mostly finished. He didn't say it's finished, but. He didn't say it's finished and you. It's finished. So the resurrection confirms to us, even though you may feel differently, God has raised the Son in acceptance of his being a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. That when we come to Christ by faith, believing that he has died for my sins, he has stood in my place, he has borne my sins in his body on the tree, I am now forgiven. This is not license to sin. This isn't to be casual with it. It's to just recognize I'm not going to drag the corpses of my sins behind me forever. He has finished it. I can let him go. I don't want to do him again, no doubt, but I'm not going to carry him with me. It gives a joy. It it gives us the satisfaction that we have been cleansed. He didn't kind of cleanse us. He fully cleansed us in every way. 
And then the last implication of the resurrection that I would have you think about is it brings about a new day, a new dawn, a new age. This should be, for us, devastating news. The fact that God has made Christ, this dead Savior, alive, sitting at the right hand of God. This ought to cause us to tremble. There's a new order. There's a new way. There is a new way of God that's going on right now. If he is the king of all, if he's sovereign over all, then we all owe our allegiance to him. We all are called to follow him by faith. All of us are, whether you, whether you accept it or not. He, if this is true, that's where he is. And the call is that we all are called to follow him. But many of us here, you may not. I mean, if you're here and you're just with family and you've been thinking about this, as I said, then, then I would ask you to consider this. Because the call of Easter is the call to faith, to believe. Now listen, when I say that, faith is not an intellectual problem. It's not an evidential problem. It's a moral or personal one. Let me explain what I mean by that. You know, as I said before, all the facts of the resurrection were known to the Roman leaders, to the Jewish leaders, and to the disciples. Everybody knew the same thing. Some, the guards at the tomb in Matthew, they saw the angel, they felt the earthquake, they ran back, they explained what happened, and then the Jewish leaders said, the disciples stole him. So all the facts were there, they had the same facts, they just didn't believe them. You see the same thing today, it's no different than the Holocaust. right? You have the Holocaust, which intelligent people, looking at this evidence, disbelieve it. They just disbelieve it. See, believing in things is not an intellectual issue per se. It's a moral. It's a personal issue. Do you choose to believe this? That's what he's asking. When they go and preach the message, do you believe this? And when I mean by faith, I mean that you're, you're coming to a place where you see God has had to crush the Son for my sins, and that I am believing in that. And belief isn't just you understand it cognitively, but that you trust it. That, that you rest in his work for you rather than your work for him. That's what faith is. And I ask you, if you're not a Christian, to consider these things. Believing in Christ is not evidential, and nor is it intellectual. It's personal and it's moral. But if you're a Christian here, I want you to know that you've entered this new dawn. You've entered this new age. You with faith here, you're living in a time where death has no longer become your enemy, but it's going to be a servant to you, and it's going to take you to Christ when you die. That now the whole reality of that life is bleeding back into this life. The decisions you make are different. The way you forgive, the way you look at money, the way you look at people, the way you look at relationships. Everything matters right now. Everything matters because there exists a time and a place where we're standing before God, and everything we've done matters. Who you are matters. What you do, what you say, how you handle your life matters. And that's why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, he says, for the love of Christ now controls me. He says, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake was raised. 
He was raised, so now the love of Christ controls us. So, Christian, ask yourself, how has the resurrection changed your life in your relationships in your marriage or your friendships, the way you handle your money, the way you handle your work? How has this changed your life? Let's take a minute, and I just want to take a moment of silence and ask you to consider these questions and the truths given, and, um, and then I'll close us in just a minute.